right, let's go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We, if you're watching us online right now, we'll put the text up on your screen when we get to that point uh, in our time together. Um, if you don't own a Bible, we would actually love to give you one. We like giving Bibles away around here. Uh, we think that's a really fun thing to do. I, you could probably you know, accuse me of being weird about that, but I, I still like it. Um, so we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things. Chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. We want everything in your life to be uh, defined by him and valued through him and shaped by him and all those things. And so if the, the scriptures are what he uses to get you to that point, then it's a really smart move, an advantageous move on our part to, to put Bibles in people's hands and be coming up with creative ways for people to be reading them all the time. So if you don't have a Bible of your very own, don't have one that you could call yours, uh, get a hold of me, and we can knock that out pretty quick. Um, so if I were to ask you what your absolute favorite year was, how many of y'all are going with 2020? Why are you laughing? No, one, no, one's, no one's thinking that this is the best year of their life ever? No, nobody's going with that one? I mean, if you had, uh, <laughs> some people are excited for when it's over. Yeah, um, like, Think of all the opportunities you've had this year to learn new things, new technologies like Zoom and Google Classroom. Aren't you excited about getting to grow in those ways? How many of you were going into 2020 with a, like a like a just a, a drawer full of face masks that you were thinking, I've got to figure out a way to wear these more often? Nobody? How many of you uh, made a New Year's resolution in 2020 to live more like Bear Grylls and when it comes to using toilet paper. Did anybody make that resolution? And so, we said it last week, but nothing has changed since then. This year stinks, right? It's, it's not exactly, it's, it's exactly going to rank in, in, in our top of the whatever list. And uh, Sure, there, there have certainly been worse times in our world to live in. I, any, any student of history can point to hundreds of them, if not thousands, but, but for those of us who are alive right now, it, it's been a pretty crummy year, right? And crummy is really only a sufficient word for those who have only been inconvenienced by this year. Uh, there's a lot to laugh at, but then there's, there, there's also some tragedy this year, right? We, we've seen a lot of loss. Maybe you've lost a job this year. Maybe you've had some kind of major life event get ripped away from you, whether it's your graduation ceremony or maybe to, to be there for the birth of your grandchild. You've had a lot of things taken away. Maybe, maybe you watched someone you loved dearly be taken away from you by a, a virus that you're powerless to do anything about. I had a friend of mine, I call him a friend, he was kind of a mentor boss figure. I found out through Facebook yesterday that he passed away. 2020 stinks, right? It really stinks. And, and, and so whether 2020 has been awkward for you or agonizing for you, the next question that, that rolls to the surface is, okay, but what do we do with Christmas? Because it's here, right? It's, it's, it's here. It's arrived. Whether you enjoy the Christmas thing or not, whether you were looking forward to or not, it's here. So movies are on TV, songs are on the radio, lights are everywhere. All right, and so Christmas is here, but the question becomes, well, what exactly is the appropriate response to it, right? 
How, how do we handle Christmas in 2020? And I, I think for, for some, the answer is to double down, right? Uh, they, they'll, they'll make sure that, that even though some things have been ripped away, even though some things aren't happening, they're going to be absolutely certain. They're going to put in the work, put in the effort to make sure that at least some of those things that they hold dear still happen. And so they'll fight anybody that gets in their way. They're going to make certain that it happens the way they want it to happen. The answer is to double down. There are others that, that scoff at the idea that this would ever be considered the hap- happiest season of them all, right? They want nothing to do with holiday greetings and gay happy meetings when friends come to call. Keep your calling like six feet over there, right? How dare you even attempt to do such a thing? This is for sure the Christmas that no one expected. Yeah, we kind of saw it bubbling up from a distance all the way back in the summer. We're like, I don't know if this stuff's going to be gone by then. But did anybody see this coming last December? When we were shutting things down and deciding, hey, we're going to do this different next year, and we're going to do that different next year. Is anybody looking forward to this? I know I wasn't, and I'm the planner. This is the Christmas that no one expected. And we talked about this last week, but I honestly wonder why, though. Why didn't we expect something like this? Um, The more I read the stories that make up the Christmas narrative, the more convinced I am that God's people have actually been here before. Maybe not global pandemic, but there's always a, they're always wrestling with a swirl of confusion and larger-than-life questions, things that they hope will happen, and then something outside of their control just yanks all that away, blows it away. They're always kind of re-evaluating their expectations because God did something that was, that was both different and at the same time also way better than what they ever expected. Do you get that impression when you read the stories? And even though they seem to live more in a state of chaos than a state of calm, God always proves his faithfulness to them by getting them exactly where they need to be. In fact, he often uses that very chaos to shape them into what they need to be. He's sovereign over the chaos, which raises a question for me. What if our unmet expectations around Christmas 2020 aren't there because this specific year is terrible and this specific year can't deliver. What if our expectations are unmet because we've actually expected the wrong things out of Christmas? What if we placed our hopes and our dreams upon things that not only are capable of being taken away, but also maybe sometimes need to be taken away so that we take our hands off of those things and value other more important eternal things more? See, I love a lot of the stuff that gets piled up on top of our Christmas celebration. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun for me. I enjoyed watching our building get decorated this year. I, I, I like the Christmas movies. My favorite Christmas movie is The Christmas Story. I know that probably makes me a bad pastor, but I love it. All right? So I love that movie. I love a lot of the extra stuff that gets piled on top of our Christmas celebration every year. But, and so I'm going to really miss some of the things that don't happen this year. Like I'm, I'm absolutely going to miss that, but at the same time, I, I don't get the impression from the biblical characters that missing any of those kinds of things would have slowed them down. I, I don't think that would have blown up their, their Christmas celebration. 
I don't think that would have shut down what they were doing. No matter how dense the chaos was for them, exceeding great joy bubbled up to the top. In fact, it came exploding out. So I want to focus our attention during this short little Advent season on the expectations surrounding the very first people who got to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And I want to do that because I think that their circumstances and their response to their circumstances and, and kind of how that shaped them and what we saw from them, I think that can help us uh, change what, uh, what and, and how and, and maybe even why we celebrate Christmas. And so does that sound good to you? Good. That's all I got planned. Luke 1 starting in verse 57. Uh, we, we shut things down last week uh, by reading 56, and so we're just picking up the story where we left off. Luke 1, 57, it says this, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors. And all uh, these things were talked about through the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Okay, so we play this game out every year, right? We, we know the story, all right? Zechariah and Elizabeth are an older couple. They've, they've never been blessed with children Earlier in chapter 1, Luke goes out of his way. He makes a point of telling us that they are upstanding people, that they walk blameless in their generation. And so barrenness for them is not some kind of God-ordained punishment for some hidden sin in their life. All right? And I know that sounds weird and harsh coming out of my mouth, but it's absolutely 100% one of the things that would have been whispered behind their backs in that culture. That's the word on the street. Have you seen how Zechariah and Elizabeth don't have kids yet? I wonder why. God must be telling us something. That's the tone of the culture. And so Luke goes out of his way to let us know that this couple is walking in righteousness. So that's not at all what's going on. Gee, I wonder what is going on then. Zechariah was a Levite. He was a priestly tribe. We're told again earlier in, in Luke 1 that he's from the, 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 the division of Abijah. And so you may not have ever really thought through this before, but when you have a whole tribe of priests, you've got to figure out a way of dividing up the work. All right? And so they, would have, they had 24 divisions of priests who would uh, work on a rotation up at the temple. And so think of it like shift work. They'd pack a bag, they go to the, the temple for a week, they do all the priestly duties, uh, and then go home. And they do that like twice a year. And then everybody was on, uh, everybody was on, on, on shift when the, the major festivals were happening. And so, uh, but, but even with those smaller divisions, even if you take the tribe of the Levites and break them down into smaller divisions, even with those smaller divisions, there's still hundreds of priests in a division. There's only a handful of jobs to do. So who gets to do them? Well, the way they figure that out is they'd roll lots. They cast lots. They'd roll dice, right? And so if your lot got cast, then you got to go do the priestly job for that day. And the story goes 
Zechariah gets his lot chosen. He gets chosen to offer the incense during the hour of incense, which was like a daily offering that, that happened. And, and, and many commentators argue that, that because of the sheer number of priests waiting their turn, you only got this job once. Once you had your opportunity, it was, you didn't get to turn anymore. It was going to be somebody else's job. And so really, there was a lot of waiting around and just hoping your number got called. Zechariah would go to the temple, spend a week there, didn't get called, go home. Zechariah would go to the temple, spend a week there, number never got called, you go home. Year after year after year after year. And then one day, the lot falls on him. It's time to shine, right? Time to time to make his mark. It's time to do it better than all the other guys in the division of Abijah had ever done it before. It's Zechariah's turn. So so hear me clearly. Going into this moment, Zechariah would have seen this as the apex of his career. It was finally Zechariah's time to do what he was made for. Been serving as a priest his entire adult life, and he finally gets his chance to step into the spotlight. He heads to the altar. There's a crowd gathered around outside trying to be pious. They're praying during this hour of incense. And so it's finally his turn to, to do the priestly work that he's been born for. And then what happens next? Gabriel shows up. An angel shows up. Gabriel, we're told. Got, got a little announcement for people. Zechariah, how you doing, man? I have great news for you. You're going to be a daddy, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. You've been begging him for decades now. God has finally heard your prayer. You're going to have a son, Zechariah. You're going to name him John, and he's going to be an absolutely massive deal. What an incredible announcement, right? He's going to come in the spirit of the prophet Elijah. He's going to prepare God's people for God himself to show up. It's good news. It's really good news. And Zechariah finds this news so incredible, so unbelievable, that even in the presence of an angel, even in the presence of Gabriel, he goes, how? I don't know if you notice this, Mr. Angel, sir, but I'm old. And my wife, she's really old. How? Luke tells us, that Gabriel goes off in that moment. Do you know who I am? You really going to talk that way, try to talk that way to somebody who gets to stand in the presence of God? Do you know who I am? So Gabriel gives Zechariah a little time out from talking until all these things come to pass. He's made mute. And I would argue he's deaf as well. So Zechariah's week of service comes to an end. He goes home. That homecoming is probably a little awkward. He left being able to talk in here. Hi, honey. They work it out somehow. And somewhere in that process, Elizabeth conceives. The couple who were called barren, the couple who had a thousand whispers going on behind their back, suddenly find themselves in an incredibly privileged place. 
But we're also told that they're scared, right? And so they keep it hidden for at least six months, maybe the whole pregnancy. They keep it a secret. To be honest, probably added to the whispers. Fast forward nine months, and it's time for John to finally make his appearance, and we're told that everybody is buzzing, right? And like, how couldn't they? Like, how, how could they not be buzzing? You can't hide an old pregnant lady for very long. Right? It starts to, to get noticed. And so last time we had a birth this late in the ballgame, Abraham and Sarah were involved. It's kind of a big deal. Right? And so everybody's starting to, to talk. Everybody's starting to buzz around. Everybody's starting to, to, to get excited about this. The community is excited, and the, the baby is born. And a week later, it's time to, to kind of circumcise him and, and, and kind of officially announce his name. And mom wants the name to be John. And the crowd thinks that everybody, the crowd thinks that that's kind of a ridiculous thing because nobody else in their family is named John. Like, why would you do that? That's dumb. Right? Crowds often have opinions about things, and they're wrong. Right? But the crowd thinks that that's a terrible idea, so they go to Dad. Dad doubles down, right? He gestures for a crude writing tablet. It would have been like a plank with some wax smeared across it. And so don't think of this as something that you can be fast about. Right? But he scratches out in that wax. His name is John. And Luke tells us that in that moment, his tongue is unloosed. The mute man now is able to get vocal about some stuff. Zechariah has been mostly alone in his thoughts since Gabriel took him out to the woodshed out at the temple. He hasn't been able to share his mind. Yeah, he, he could maybe scratch out some stuff. He's made some signs here and there, but... Zechariah has been, been thinking about this moment for a while now. His life has changed dramatically since that day with, with Gabriel. He, he, his promised son is finally here, and Zechariah, at long last, has an opportunity to let everyone know what he thinks about things. And so here's a really important question I think we all ought to answer. If you're in his shoes, what do you say? Like, you've been getting ready for this for nine months. What's coming out of your mouth in this moment? You've had a silent front row seat the last nine months. You've watched God promise and then deliver on a very thing that, that you've begged him for for decades, right? You've, you've pleaded with God to give you a child. You've begged God to give you a son. You and your wife together, you by yourself in your dark, quiet moments, you've asked God to do this over and over and over and over again for a generation or more, and he's finally answered, and you've watched it all play out, and you couldn't say a word. When you're finally able to say a word, what is that word? In verse 64, Luke says Zechariah blesses God. In other words, he worships. He worships. The old priest has come a long, long way from how. Apparently, Gabriel's little timeout was effective. Zechariah learned his lesson, right? And everybody in the room is freaking out about the mute man who could suddenly talk, but which is understandable, I think. Zechariah, he's catching up on what he should have been doing all along, praising God. Look what happens next in verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited, his peop- for he has visited and redeemed his people. Excuse me. So last week we looked at a, a hymn of praise that we call the Magnificat, right? Uh, the Magnificat. It's the Latin word for magnify. This week we, we see another 
hymn of praise. It's called the Benedictus. So everybody say that out loud so you can sound smart. Benedictus. Don't you feel smart learning Latin words like that? Um, No, Benedictus is just the Latin word for blessing. That's that's all it is. You're probably more familiar with the uh, different Latin word, benediction. It's just a a benediction is a blessing. And so Zechariah's first opportunity to speak his mind after nine months of silently watching God do his work, it's not to celebrate his newborn son. It's not to go on and on about how proud he is. It's not to point out that John's got his eyes and his mama's nose. Those are things I do. That's not what Zechariah does, though. No, he uses his very first opportunity to speak up to heap a blessing upon God. He celebrates the goodness of the Lord, but but not just any Lord, Lord God of Israel. The God who is pleased to make himself known, pleased to identify himself with a particular people. Says that the Lord has visited them. All throughout the Old Testament, the prophets, man, they're always calling God's people to repent of their sin and return to the Lord. Over and over again, that's the that's the the drum that's beat throughout the Old Testament. Repent and return, repent and return, repent and return. Zechariah here, he explodes with celebration over the God who is gracious enough to come himself. The God who is gracious enough to come to us. He's celebrating that God is coming near to his people. And I know our, our tendency, and, and at least it's my tendency, is to, to kind of hear that as a look how special I am kind of thing. Um, a lot of people like to, to paint the Christmas story that way. It's, I think it's a narcissistic sin as old as the, the Garden of Eden. This isn't a look how special we are kind of moment. He didn't come as a way of making much of us or honoring us. He visited his people because his people are helpless. Because his people apparently are powerless to visit him. And are in desperate need of redemption. We're not the hero of the story. We're the damsel in distress. Just as we saw from Mary last week, Zechariah, I think he deeply understands how desperately he needs a Savior. Oh, but wait a minute. Zechariah was called blameless earlier, right? Don't you remember Luke 1? You you talked about it. He was blameless. Yeah, yeah, he was. And among his peers, that's certainly sure. But Zechariah is a Boy Scout. I have no doubt. And then he goes right on and sins in his doubt of before Gabriel, right? When pressed, that sin that was always in Zechariah's heart, it came up to the surface, right? It, it, it exposed itself. That's, that's true for me, and that's true for you, and it's, no matter how put together you want to present yourself, it's, that's true for all of us. Zechariah may very well have looked more righteous and put together than all his neighbors, but that he doesn't get to compare himself to his neighbors. The standard of holiness is the infinitely holy God. And so Zechariah needs a Savior, and so do I, and so do you, and Zechariah knows it. So the very moment his tongue is finally turned loose, he praises that Savior's visitation. Look at verse 68. 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, verse 69, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, who? David. So horns are always a picture of strength in, in the Bible, whether we're talking about the Old Testament or the weird stuff in Revelation. That, that Whenever we're talking about a horn, we're talking about a symbol of strength. And so Zechariah sees this coming salvation as, as being won by a strong arm, right? In other words, it can't be undone or, or countered by some stronger, mightier enemy out there somewhere. No one's going to be able to step in and undo or thwart what God is doing by saving his people. But he also says that Israel's salvation is raised up in the house of David, right? means the old priest knows his Bible. He knows that the Messiah was promised to eventually come through David's line. His long-expected hope is that King David's family would find their way, be restored back to the throne one day. He may not fully understand all the repercussions and what that kingly restoration looks like, but I think he's starting to put the pieces together. I think the old priest is starting to figure some things out here. He keeps going in verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So as he spoke from holy prophets of old, right? So who's Zechariah talking about? Talking about pretty much the whole Old Testament, right? And so God's promises were not just limited to the one he made to David, that the, the, the Messiah would come through his line, that the kingdom, the, the throne would be restored. Zechariah understands that God is beginning to fulfill all of his Old Testament promises right before his eyes. Would you get excited about that? As those things start clicking into place, tumblers begin to fall, are you starting to get worked up about what you're watching God do in that moment? I think I would. There's a continuity of, uh, of covenants through the Old and New Testament. A lot, of, a lot of people misunderstand this about the Bible. Is that they should be seen as kind of two separate pieces, as if one is applicable for today and the other one isn't. And the same kind of debate as that imprecatory psalm we read earlier. Oh, that's not for us anymore. But the Old and New Testaments really ought to be seen more as promises made and promises kept. That, that's how you put those pieces together. Promises made and promises kept. Mercy was promised to our fathers. It was uttered from holy prophets of old. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And despite our inability to hold up our end of the deal, God is faithful and he will remember his covenant promises. He will not forget. The oath that God swore to Abraham will be fulfilled. We can bank on it. Now that, that oath that Zechariah is referring to, um, that God's people would be delivered from the hand of their enemies. I think in this case, Zechariah may be speaking more deeply than he understands. That, that was kind of a recurring thing 
through, through the Old Testament prophets. They, they were faithful to deliver the message even if they didn't fully understand the, the, the whole scope of that message when they delivered it. Um, there's some debate over which Abrahamic promise uh, that Zechariah is referring to here. Um, and a lot of folks want to point to Genesis 12. We, we point to Genesis 12 in here a ton. All right? We constantly come back to the idea that, that God has promised to, to bless Abraham and to make him a, a blessing to all the nations, right? We, we, we point back to Genesis 12 often, and, and one of the reasons we do that is because it's kind of the umbrella promises that all the other Abrahamic promises fall under, right? And so it kind of carries the, the whole scope. It was the very first one that where God approached Abram, and so it, we kind of see that as kind of the, the, the meta promise, if you want to, to go there. And so, um, and so that, that's a good one to maybe point to, that a lot of people want to say that, yeah, yeah, Zechariah is talking about Genesis 12 right there. Um, others want to point to a different promise that God made, Genesis 22. If you know that story, uh, uh, Abraham has almost sacrificed Isaac, but God stops him, right? The angel of the Lord shows up and says, no, 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 we're not doing this right now. Now that I know that, now that I know that you're going to do things this way, now that I know that you will be obedient, here's what I want you to do. And he offers the ram and all that kind of stuff. And then the angel of the Lord stops him from plunging the knife. And in verse 15 of Genesis 22, it says this. I've got it here. It says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as of the sand on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. I tend to agree with the the Genesis 22 argument, because oath and enemy language are actually used here when it's not in back in Genesis 12. But whichever one it is, I think there's something much bigger that we need to pay attention to. Zechariah has a growing sense of the Messiah, right? And he longs for the promises of peace that were sworn all those years ago to finally be fulfilled, finally sworn all those generations before to Abraham. He longs for them to, to finally come to pass. He longs for God to fulfill his promises that his people would be blessed. And he longs for the bad guys to get what they deserve and for the good guys to finally find rest, right? He longs for all of those things. And whether he's thinking of Genesis 12 in this moment or Genesis 22 in this moment, in both options, I don't know if you caught it, but in both options, a much bigger promise is made on the heels of the initial promise. That God would ultimately bless, use his people to bless the nations. That he wasn't just working through one people. He was going to use his one people to ultimately save people from all peoples. Whether Zechariah understands it or not, and, and to be clear, I, if he's not there yet, I think he's getting there quick. But whether Zechariah, whichever, whatever Zechariah thinks of the Messiah, we're told that he is filled with the Holy Spirit here, right? And so he's prophesying. And, and so we can trust that God is steering this prophecy wherever he wants it to go. The ultimate aim of what God is doing is that once his people are delivered from their enemies we will serve God without fear we will serve him in holiness we'll serve him in righteousness all our days and he will draw men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and 
nation to do and be all of those things. Hmm, I wonder how he's going to make that happen. I wonder how God will ever accomplish such a wonderful thing. Well, look what Zechariah says next. Verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Okay, so when Zechariah has, has been talking for a pretty long time now, and he finally turns to addressing his newborn son, right? He, he finally gets to the point where he's like, he can actually address his newborn John, right? And so he, his promised child, fulfilled by the goodness and the grace and, of God, daddy is, is given a, a peek of what God has in store for his boy, and he swings for the fence here, right? He says that John will be called a prophet of the Most High. It's not a light title. And when you think about it, it's also an incredibly ironic title, all right? Um, just game out the, the characters here. Um, the only people who could be priests were from the tribe of Levite, right? Uh, that, that's all who could be priests. The prophets normally, not always, but normally came from the tribe of Judah. There's some incredibly notable exceptions in there, but most of them came from Judah. And so all of the priests came from Levi. Most of the prophets came from Judah. And so here you have a Levite priest prophesying, which is weird, all right, about his Levite son who should become a priest and declaring that his Levite son is going to be a prophet of somebody. His job is to prepare the way of the Lord. Who's the Lord going to be? A guy from Judah? Who instead of being a prophet is going to be considered our great high priest? God seems kind of be flipping the script here, right? If you're wondering, is Jesus allowed to be a priest even though he's from the tribe of Judah? The, the short answer is yes. The longer answer involves a really cool guy named Melchizedek. That's a way longer sermon for another time. A better question, though, is how? How will John prepare the way of the Lord? Well, what did verse 77 say? What's John's job? To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John's job was to preach repentance. To tell God's people that forgiveness is available out there and here is the pathway into that. He, his, he called the people to, to turn away from their sin and to, to place their trust in God. That, that repentance was pictured in baptism, right? That's why we call him John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. But his job was to awaken people to the reality of their sin so that Jesus would be properly seen as the one who makes payment for that sin and removes that sin. I've got not news for you. That's every preacher's job. Every good preacher is a little bit of a John the Baptist type. They may not be super into camel's hair and eating weird stuff out in the desert, but it's their job to call sin for what it is and to clearly point to Jesus as the way to receive forgiveness. That's all a preacher's job ever is. To point to the one where redemption and salvation 
are freely given. So how does the one bringing that forgiveness of sin get here? Well, Zechariah is still not done. Verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Calling someone a, their, your sunrise, it, it's a little bit of a bold move. Can we be honest about that? Um, like any, if anybody earns the metaphor, it's Jesus, right? Jesus gets to be called sunrise. And, and guys, also your wife. Right? Jesus and your wife. Only two people in your life that get to be called your sunrise. Don't use it today. She'll know you were prompted. But let it lay, let it lay fallow for a week or two. And then whip that baby out when you need it. All right? So Jesus and your wife get to be called your sunrise. Uh, so for Zechariah, though, the, the, the sunrise visits us from on high. So while I'm sure he has all kinds of great feelings about Elizabeth, I don't think that's who he's talking about here. He's talking about Jesus, right? He just, he just made it to praising his son. He went on and on, verse after verse, talking about how good God is and how great God is because of this and how great God is because of that. He finally turns to addressing his newborn son, and two verses later, he's back on God again. Best way to celebrate a birth. It says that this visiting sunrise will give light to those sitting in darkness. And the pastor who really wants you to know your Bibles well hopes that everybody in the room is thinking Isaiah 9-2 right now. What does it say? Those who walked in darkness have... Yeah. Yeah. The text that we read our first week of our Advent readings... There's a reason why we read it every year for Advent. Zechariah, an educated old priest, somebody who's been doing this job for a long, long time. He's currently filled with the Holy Spirit prophesying, and he, in this moment, plants the flag. The Messiah is coming soon. Dawn is here, and the sun is beginning to rise. The Messiah is coming soon, and, it, and it's possible. Emphasis on possible. But it's possible that that very son was in the room as he made this grand announcement. Last week we looked at Mary visiting Elizabeth, right? We're told that uh, she goes to Elizabeth in Elizabeth's sixth month of pregnancy, and we're told that she stayed there for three months before going home. And so it's entirely possible that Mary left shortly before this moment. That could have happened, but it's also equally possible that Mary is standing in the room as Zechariah is making this prophecy. We're not told one way or the other, so we don't actually know, but you think the stories of these two miraculous conceptions, these two miraculous pregnancies haven't been shared around the dinner table a few times over the last several months? I think everybody in that house has a deepening sense of the goodness of God to them. I think they haven't spent the last few months trying to connect the dots and fall deeper and deeper and deeper in love with the God who is orchestrating his divine plan for his people. I think they haven't been doing the math on that. It's like a fairy tale, right? Happily ever after. The boy is born, 
The even better boy is coming later. The town is buzzing. The house is celebrating. Zechariah's tongue is loose and he can't stop talking. What a story, right? It's like a Hallmark movie. It's a Christmas miracle. But we also haven't read verse 80 yet. There's one more verse. Luke tells us, And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. As amazing and as God-glorifying as, as it is for a child to be born to an elderly Zechariah and Elizabeth, that the reality is that they likely weren't around for very long to watch him grow up. There's a way of reading verse 80 to say that John grew up and then struck off into the wilderness, but it's a more honest way, I think, a much simpler way of reading verse 80 to say that John grew up in the wilderness. Yes, God took care of him. Yes, God grew him up both physically and spiritually. God was over him, but it also seems like he did so in isolation. He grew up mostly alone out in the desert. The Hallmark fairy tale doesn't play out like we were all expecting it would, does it? That joyous moment with, with everybody gathered around, a beaming father celebrating God's goodness to him through his boy, that's a temporary moment. It's fading. I know our favorite Christmas movies always zoom out and fade to black in those moments, and the implication there is that things just kind of continually go on happily ever after, long after the camera shuts off. That's not the normal experience for really anywhere else in the world. That's, that's not our experience at all. The assumptions and the expectations often fall apart after a little while. There's no fade to black in, in real life. It's highly likely, highly likely that John watched his parents die when he was very, very young, and then he grew up alone. Come on, you're really going to bring that up during Advent? Kind of a downer, right? Like, where, where's the doting parents? Where are the, the hapless shepherds being elevated to watch our Savior's birth, to witness the, the, the miracle? I thought this was supposed to be a Christmas sermon. I promise you it is a Christmas sermon. Because despite whatever we may imagine the Christmas story to be, and despite however we might expect it all to play out, the reality is that even though several of the, uh, the expectations on this story may have been shattered for us, not a single one of God's promises are. Not a one. Not a single one of God's promises are being left unfulfilled. Every single one of the things that Zechariah blessed the Lord for doing either was carried out in that moment or will be carried out in eternity uh, by uh, either the one he is holding or the one uh, that th th his boy was called to set the way for. It's the man-made expectations heaped on top of God's work that let us down. That's what failed us. We all know that Christmas looks different this year. That's obvious to anybody paying attention. And so anybody who tries to argue otherwise is either lying or pretending. 
But when you stop and seriously think about what has and has not been lost, it's just the cheap man-made stuff on top. That's all it is. What if Christmas 2020 not being able to deliver on our expectations isn't because this year stinks, but because we've expected the wrong things out of Christmas? God's people have been here before. In fact, it's, it's pretty much the persistent biblical reality. The, the question to, to be answered, though, is do we hang on to the eternal promises or, or, or do we desperately cling to the fleeting ones? You think Zechariah and Elizabeth knew they probably wouldn't be around to see John grow into an adult? You think they saw that coming? You think it affected the way they prepared for his birth? Zechariah was shut up in his own thoughts for nine months. You think he kicked that one around a few times? You think he did the math in his head, hashed out all the what-ifs? I have no doubt he did. And yet, the very moment his tongue is loosed, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. The very moment. There are man-made expectations for this Christmas that have been shattered into a million pieces, but then there's also the stuff that God has actually promised to do, and I think that stuff's untouchable. It's untouchable. What we need this Christmas is not a greater effort to try and salvage our shattered expectations. What we need is a deeper sense of what God is actually doing so that it produces a modern-day Benedictus. We need an anticipation that looks past the lesser things that either have been lost or we know will be lost and instead can't wait to explode with blessing to the one who promised much greater incorruptible things. So how do we get to that point, right? Or maybe we can ask that question in a different way. How do we respond to, to God's word? And, and so if you're a follower of Jesus, the answer is the same thing as it is every single week for us. We repent of sin and we lean into uh, to, to what he's revealed about himself in, in the text. And so the, the extra stuff that we piled on top of our Christmas celebrations, it isn't necessarily bad. And those, those things often add depth and flavor to our celebration. But listen, our reaction when those things are taken away probably tells us something about our hearts we don't like. Maybe that's a red flag for us. So what do we do? We, we repent of sin and we lean into His goodness rather than the goodness we've tried to create. We repent of sin and we lean in. In a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a moment specifically set aside for you to put action to what God is stirring in your heart. If you, if you want somebody to talk about it, I, I have to play today, but I'd love to talk to you about it after we're done. And you, if you're watching us online, you can use the, the contact form to, to, to get a hold of me about that way. I'd love to help you walk through and make sense of this uh, response of repentance and faith and leaning in and all that kind of stuff. But if you're here this morning and you're, you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm glad you're hanging out with us today, whether it's in person or, or online right now. The Bible teaches that there's a need in your life that is far greater than your unmet expectations. Far greater. Zechariah saw it. He needed a savior. Despite however blameless he styled himself to be, the moment he was pressed, he knew how short he had fallen. And so my prayer for you is that you would have that moment where you realize how short you've fallen. Zechariah needed a savior. So do you. So do I. 
We're all by default separated from God because of our sin. We are owed his righteous wrath. But the reason why we celebrate Christmas is because God made a way where there was no way. Jesus, the eternal son of God, put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as a perfectly innocent substitute to make payment for your sin. He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you this morning to respond to him in repentance and in faith. Like John the Baptist this morning, my job is to call you to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. Turn to him where forgiveness can be found. You can do that today. You can respond to Jesus by placing your trust and your faith in Jesus. You don't, you don't need me to do that, but man, I'd love to be helpful to you. And So after we're done here, get a hold of me. I'd love to help you walk through it. But whoever you are, However, God is calling you to respond this morning. Let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for being a God who not only came, but prepared for your coming. Positioned your people for your coming. Sent heralds for your coming. Would we, like John the Baptist, call people to repent and believe? Would we, like Zechariah, humble our hearts before you and respond with praise the moment we see you working? Oh, don't protect us from needing the time out. Father, would we Would we celebrate you and what you're doing more than any of the extra things we've tried to add in place of you? Father, for those who don't know you, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you call people to yourself? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know in this moment? Would you draw people into your kingdom? Father, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray.